Hi, uh, my name is Riley. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> Through God's grace, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and sponsorship, I've been sober since November 21st, 1966. For that, I am grateful. <laughs> and I see uh, some of my friends from Kokomo here. Uh, who would have thought I would have retired to Kokomo? But uh, they're uh, they're fully aware that this uh, is not a program of seniority. It's uh, a program a day at a time. And uh, I'm. Uh, Regretting that originally I was planning to stay here and uh, really catch a lot of meetings and uh, I have to go back to New Jersey to speak at a uh, memorial service for uh, Geraldine O. Delaney, who uh, uh, I understand was a real close friend of uh, the folks here uh, from one of the previous uh, conferences. Uh, she passed away uh, July the, uh, the 9th of uh, this year. and. Uh, you know, a, a real icon, not only in the field of, uh, of recovery, but uh, in this program, somebody that uh, occasionally uh, I would use as a sponsor. In fact, when uh, when I got married to a woman in the program, she said, uh, where do you want to go for treatment if you get drunk? And uh, <laughs> I said, uh, you know, it was sort of prenuptial agreement. And uh, <laughs> I said... Uh, I ain't getting drunk. And uh, she said, uh, oh, you're not an alcoholic. And, uh, and I said, okay. And I thought for a minute and I said, uh, okay, uh, put me down for Alina Lodge. And she said, oh, I didn't think you were all that positive about uh, their program keeping people for a year out there with that old lady. And uh, I said, uh, that's right. I said, uh, as long as I've got her hanging over my head, there ain't no way in hell I'm getting drunk. And, uh, <laughs> I hope she's uh, she's looking down uh, and uh, uh, smiling a little bit because uh, so many people, I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt anything, but uh, I, I did want to say that uh, a, a real icon has, uh, has passed on. Uh, I'm also, uh, other than a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm also a uh, recovering drug addict. Uh, I uh, haven't placed a bet in the last four years. Uh, I am currently a relapser in uh, FAA and uh, OA, uh, and I am not a codependent. Uh, AA has uh, gotten real fancy and sophisticated, the fellowships. Uh, there's a program now for uh, that I would fit adult uh, grandchildren of, uh, you know, right, adult right-handed grandchildren of alcoholics. And, uh, I've uh, got a program of, uh, of, of basics, and I also worked uh, almost 30 years in the, uh, the alcoholism field, and so I learned a lot of fancy terms. Uh, I learned what a significant other was. Uh, <laughs> you know, a significant other is uh, a friendly municipal court judge who says, uh, <laughs> says you know, uh, we would uh, like you to volunteer for treatment. And he says, what are the alternatives? And says, well, we're going to put you in the county jail for 364 days. And he says, I'd like to volunteer for treatment. And uh, the guy uh, comes into the boss and they say, uh, you know, Mr. Smith, 
you've missed the last uh, 14 out of 18 Mondays. We'd like you to volunteer for treatment. He says, what are the alternatives? He said, we're going to fire your ass. He says, I'd like to volunteer for treatment. <laughs> and uh, I was a skid row drunk. I, I brag a little bit uh, around all these auto workers in uh, Kokomo that uh, I was living in a three-door car before they made three-door cars. <laughs> <laughs> and skid row drunks don't have too many significant others. I had drank my way out of anything uh, uh, that was available. And uh, I had one significant other left. He was a 245-pound brother-in-law. And a guy had uh, let me get into his car one night while he went into a diner to talk to some women. The motor was running and it was warm and I was feeling nice and fuzzy. And uh, he was in there talking and so I took his car to Richmond. And uh, it didn't quite get to Richmond. It got uh, ran out of gas, got towed away. He had all his sales records in there. He was looking for me. My brother-in-law was looking for me. And uh don't know how my brother-in-law found me, but uh, he got a hold of me. And over the phone, and I had a quart of wine in my hand, and he said, uh, look, I'm going to take you out to the state mental hospital. I want you to volunteer for treatment. I don't want to go through the hassle of having you committed like the last time. <laughs> and I took a slug off the wine, and I said, uh, well, what are the alternatives? And he says, I'm going to come over there and knock out all your teeth. And uh, I said, I'd like to volunteer for treatment. <laughs> Now this is a this is state nut house where uh, they didn't have very many treatment facilities in those days. And they were uh, doing LSD treatment. Uh, the patient would take LSD. The therapist would take LSD. They both, <laughs> and the taxpayers were paying for this, folks. They they both would look at the ceiling and say, "What is the problem?" You know, and uh, obviously there was no problem. And I had been thrown out of there for not being motivated, if you can believe. <laughs> I know John can identify with that uh, coming from that side. And so he let me have another bottle of wine, and uh, I was finishing that off as we were in the admitting area. My brother-in-law was blocking the door, reading the back of a Sports Illustrated, and uh, glaring at me every time I would yell some vulgarity at the admitting clerk who was asking those questions we need to know when you come to treatment. How tall are you? How much do you weigh? Are you on welfare? Are you legitimate? And on and on and on. And with each question, I would yell some slimy statement to this uh, this lady. And they took me to the back. And there was a psychiatrist back there with a beard who didn't speak much English. And he pulled on his beard. He said, what seems to be the problem? I said, well, I've been drunk for about 14 days. I'm going to kill myself or kill somebody if I don't get some help. And he pulled on his beard and he asked the question. He never asked a skid row drunk coming to treatment. He says, where do you work? <laughs> my uh, my last job, I was fired from manpower. And, uh, <laughs> and in fact, it was a place called Rent a Man, you know. <laughs> and to show you how outdated it is, I'm sure they've upgraded it now to Rent a Person. <laughs> And he pulled on his beard and he said, oh, you feel the world is persecuting you. And I said, no, I don't need any of this junior high school psychology. Uh, I'd rather take a beating from my brother-in-law. And I uh, went up out the door. I'd already smelled that peraldehyde that's mentioned in the big book. And uh, people, I, I love newcomers coming in saying, what's that word? 
and alcohol and ether and uh, some other stuff. And there was my brother-in-law still reading the back of the magazine. And just then the state police were bringing in a drunk and he was kicking and flailing. And everybody went through the door back into the back, including the admitting clerk. And I walked through the open door out into the yard. And the door slammed behind me. And I went over to pull the door to tell my brother-in-law, you might as well just do it to me now. And the door was locked. And I went and rapped on the window and he looked out and looked confused. And the look of confusion went to a look of terror when all of a sudden my significant other was locked in the state hospital. <laughs> and I was on the, the outside. <laughs> and the story gets really crazy. After working in the field, I learned all about the power structure, you know, and uh, uh, I used to think the uh, person with the largest uh, chain of keys was the most powerful person on the uh, at the institution. I, I've since learned that one key fits all doors. You know, when you go through, they've, they've always got 200 keys and one key to let everybody through when you take a meeting somewhere. And there was a lady in a white uniform, and I said, I know this sounds a little crazy uh, here at the Nut House, but... Uh, I'm an alcoholic, I'm not going to treatment, I'm not going through the degradation and shame that I have to go through to go into that place again. And my brother-in-law is not an alcoholic, and uh, he's somehow locked up there in the admitting area and there's nobody there, would you let him out? And uh, she shrugged her shoulders, stuck a key in there, and uh, he came flying out of there like one of those jack-in-the-boxes. And... Uh, <laughs> That was a story that I didn't bother telling for about three years in the program because it's so ridiculous and, uh, and almost, uh, it's, we, uh, we don't invent these stories. They, uh, they, they rival fiction. It, uh, it was uh, absolutely amazing. My brother-in-law would, uh, would say to me, uh, why don't you drink like me? And, and I desperately wanted to drink like him. I wanted to be like him. He won every fight he was in. And, uh, the reason I can tell this story is that uh, my brother-in-law will be celebrating his uh, 25th AA anniversary this coming December. We had the, the bastard in the right place to begin with. <laughs> and uh, another reason I can tell that story is that uh, there's a building on the grounds of one of the state nut houses in Maryland called the Riley Regan Treatment Center. It's for long-term chronic drunks that might not make it. And I guess they named it after me for uh, that purpose. To kind of remind me of, uh, of chronic drunks that might not make it. And I gave a talk there one day. They had my portrait hanging on the wall. And uh, my nose didn't turn red until I stopped drinking. I thought this thing was given to me, just only me. And I thought... Uh, <laughs> Got one of those portraits that I paid for, and my wife wouldn't even take a, a wallet-sized picture, and uh, <laughs> it was that bad. And I rambled on and rambled on with all my brilliance, and uh, I noticed that afterwards, these men were pushing one man forward as a spokesperson, and he looked up at me, he says, Mr. Regan, I said, yes. He said, we thought you were dead. And every now and then I would go, the, the program was for treatment failures, and every now and then I'd go to an AA meeting stopping off coming from New Jersey to Baltimore, and I'd go into a meeting and I'd hear somebody say, and then I, I almost got so, I got so bad that they were going to send me to the Regan Center. And I'd want to jump up and say, 
I'm Regan. <laughs> and it, it suddenly occurred to me one night that uh, I'm one drink away from being in the Regan Center with all the chronic drunks. And uh, I can look at this. Uh, when you talk about uh, through God's grace that I'm sober today, uh, you know, it, it's, it's the miracle that, uh, that takes place. I had, uh, I had wanted to reach out and grab my brother-in-law by the back of the neck when I learned that his drinking was a little bit more deviant than I thought. I had come over to their house one afternoon and found my sister hiding in the closet in fear that it was him. He was beginning to get in fights with police. And, uh, I wanted to reach out and say, you're just as much an alcoholic as me. And, uh, all I can be is, uh, is what John is for me, what, uh, we're all for each other is that uh, I can be sober today and, uh, you know, that somebody can get that message that this program works. And, uh, my brother-in-law came to me after about seven years with me in the program and, uh, said, you know, I don't know how you've done it. I don't know that this AA would ever work for me, but, uh, I would really like to try it. And, uh, just that, uh, that role modeling allowed him to, uh, to get into this program. He took to it like a duck to water. I, uh, could regress a little bit to, uh, to a point where if you're a, you're a kid that lives in the city or a kid that, uh, lives out on the farm, uh, either way you, you find a place where there's some solitude. It might be on the top of a roof. Uh, it might be out behind the barn someplace. I had found such a sol- solitary place. It was an old uh, sewer pipe that backed up underneath the Pennsylvania Railroad tracks. If you've ridden the Metroliner at all, you've gone over my sewer pipe. At uh, at a young age, uh, I would crawl back into this maze of pipes to get away from an alcoholic father, an alcoholic mother, uh, physical and sexual abuse. The things that, uh, you know, I, I can uh, give you a resume for victimization. Uh, but uh, I don't think that that, uh, that works very well. The, uh, the issue is that I would crawl into that maze of concrete pipes, sit there, contemplate the world, and come out feeling at least a little bit refreshed and uh, ready to start over. At the age of 31, I was crawling back into that same maze of concrete pipes, a handful of pills, a bottle of wine, sitting on a cinder block, sucking on that, on that bottle of wine and hating the world with an absolute passion. I hated with uh, some some passion and with some energy that I can't even figure out today, and it doesn't really matter. I hated people that could go to work because I couldn't hold a job. I hated people that had families. I hated people that could go to church. I hated people that had a God. Uh, I had none of these, uh, at least in my own mind. I'd been back and forth across the country 13 times. I was one of those running drunks, hitchhiking, freight trains, uh, stick my thumb out wherever you're going, I'm going to, and to go right along with you, it didn't really matter. Uh, I might even be able to be sober in one town for uh, four or five days, but before long, the same people were sitting around the bar that had been sitting around the last bar that I'd been in. I had a 13-year history of alcoholism, a two-year history of heroin addiction, addiction to a lot of other drugs, Totally uh, without a God, totally uh, without any understanding or compassion for another human being. Uh, the only thing I had was will, uh, the will to stay drunk and high. And probably the, the most significant thing about me at that time was that I was a fugitive 
from the state of California. I had a five-to-life prison sentence hanging over my head. Uh, I'd violated parole on an armed robbery conviction. Uh, I was a great robber, by the way. Uh, <laughs> like uh, like everything else, I'd shot myself in the leg robbing a Safeway in the middle of Los Angeles one night. <laughs> this is definitely Rule 62. I could have shortcutted so many things with your rule. <laughs> Gun had gone off. I didn't even know I'd shot myself. I'm running across the parking lot, an ex-athlete. And I say, uh, I got to cut down on my drinking or I'm going to kill somebody. You know, the kind of, kind of rational thinking. And there I am after fighting the police that night. 43 stitches in my head. Uh, I'm on the 13th floor of the L.A. County General Hospital since... Uh, since I retired, I watched One Life to Live and uh, General Hospital. And uh, you can still see where the prison ward is up there at the, the General Hospital. I'm sure they've moved it now. But uh, there were these guys reading about this asshole that shot himself in the leg robbing the Safeway. And, and I'm hiding under the covers for fear that somebody's going to find me out. You know, so in fear that somebody's going to find me out that... Uh, that my covers uh, literally would be pulled. Because I was still tough, uh, it was bad luck, and that was the only thing that had uh, had caused that. I didn't start out uh, sniveling, lying, stealing, untrustworthy, drunk. Uh, my uh, first drinking experience that I can relate well to was uh, was the night at a high school party that uh, I had three beers and discovered that that removed acne. It was uh, it was it was wonderful. I mean, it was it was absolutely. I can remember it like it took place yesterday. It was the the most incredible experience of my life to suddenly feel that I belonged, that I could dance. The shy, pimple-faced kid could uh, could now come out of himself and could be somebody. And I developed an identity with alcohol that uh, superseded everything that I ever did. Uh, every God-given talent was uh, superseded by my uh, my love affair with alcohol. It was it for me. It was an identity. Uh, my high school yearbook clearly uh, looked like a beer commercial. Uh, everything was uh, written in there. You're the best alcoholic in our class. And uh, and I thought everybody had blackouts. I was having blackouts almost immediately with my drinking. And we'd stand around in the halls and we wouldn't talk about the basketball game or we wouldn't talk about the, the, the dance. We'd talk about what did Riley do in his blackouts. And I had the, not those blackouts that you hear in AA where the guy goes to Las Vegas for 14 days and doesn't remember anything and uh, loses his cement mixer. And, uh, you know, I, I would have those ones you could piece together and we'd stand around, we'd piece them together. And, and then you uh, tap danced on the piano and then you... Uh, you know, you sat on the birthday cake, and, and then you hit Sally's father. And, uh, and you know, in high school, you can't go back to Sally's house, but you can come back to my house and hit my father. You know, that would be okay. <laughs> it was an immediate identity, and I went off to, uh, to college to be a physical education teacher. And uh, found out that I was much too small, uh, not uh, good enough, couldn't imagine coaching anybody in any way. And besides, the only thing I could do... Uh, Acceptable was to outdrink the other, uh, the students, the ones that had come in from Korea. And, uh, I, uh, 
got asked to leave uh, college as a result of my drinking. And uh, in fact, my last uh, year before I got thrown out, I was allowed on campus for classes and not extracurricular activities. What a great way to treat somebody with a disease. You know, don't let the sun set on your head. And uh, people would kid me. They'd say, uh, you could play at the away games. You know, uh... <laughs> and the reality was I wasn't even playing. And uh, you're, you're confronted with, uh, with I must be some kind of a moral degenerate to get thrown out of this Methodist uh, school. Or uh, I must be crazy. And I took the crazy route. Uh, I was sure that I was crazy, I was insane, that that's why I was acting like I did, and that's why I was drinking like I did, and uh, and I took the other route that uh, so much characterized my uh, my life, I ran, and uh, I went to Florida, and then I went to California, and I can remember uh, being in an, uh, an apartment uh, with uh, about eight, uh, eight guys, and there was a phone in there that would ring... Uh, constantly and uh, we couldn't make calls out and we kept trying to get it disconnected and one night it rang and I went over and I ripped it out of the wall and I uh, threw it over the balcony and uh, I went with it. Uh, (laughs) Concussion, contusion, uh, uh, dislocated shoulder and uh, the phone broke in half, and I understood that the wine bottle was still bouncing with, uh, to, to go 20 feet with a bottle of wine in one hand. And we had this landlady that was real crazy trying to break up the parties. And uh, I woke up one morning, and two women had dyed my hair flame red number 33 in a black hat. <laughs> now, most of you should know that uh, in 1966, when I came in this program, I had hair. And... Uh, <laughs> So uh, I would take that red hair right now, for, uh, regardless of what it looked like. And one night by accident, and then on purpose, we all ended up urinating on the same landlady who was screaming up and yelling at us off the balcony. And the police were there with their big, long flashlights. And uh, she was screaming, that's him, the red-headed boy. And, uh, <laughs> And we ended up, uh, I had this, uh, this, uh, in- incredible, uh, nice police officer. The two of them, they put me in the car, handcuffed, and, uh, they drove around the block with her still beating on the back of the, of the police car. Stopped the car and they were laughing so hard that they almost rolled out. And, uh, boom. You know, they said, we hate this landlady, and uh, they said, don't go back there tonight. That that had been uh, the story of my life already, was that uh, I was able to talk my way out of things, talk my way into things, and uh, before the night was over, uh, all our friends would be living in your house, and uh, before the week was over, we'd have your furniture. And, uh, uh, you know, I was written off as a sociopath by a lot of folks, and uh, I can tell you that I wasn't a sociopath. Uh, I had massive guilt uh, every time that we did something like that to someone. I'd say, God, I wish I could go back and change that. And it would get so painful that I would uh, end up doing it again. I uh, can remember uh, living in, in, by the way, we moved from that apartment uh, and had uh, three bedrooms, no sheets, and uh, a house that once again we were all moving from. Uh, we were We were poison to the community at that time. 
I knew that I was uh, was losing it and uh, started taking some courses at uh, one of the state colleges. Uh, I was studying some psychology courses, trying to find out what was wrong with me. And uh, I hardly had to bring the books home. I had an abnormal psychology course. I was living with a guy that was in and out of DTs, and we'd laugh because we could set him off by yelling, there goes a snake. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> there were there were a couple couple drug addicts kicking habits, a uh, couple people of some very questionable uh, sexual orientation, and uh, and me, you know, sitting there, and another guy over in the corner we weren't able to classify. And uh, and I would say, hey, you know, I'm different from these people. And uh, you folks in AA taught me that if there's a duck in front of you, a duck behind you, a duck to your right and a duck to your left, pretty good chance you're a duck. But I uh, I couldn't see it. And I actually uh, began to uh, to get to the point where I couldn't drink at all without uh, having three and four day withdrawal periods, and uh, uh, tried desperately to uh, to try to keep drinking. And I ended up in uh, in a part of uh, California that uh, if Texas or Oklahoma don't want you, they sent you to Bell Gardens, and uh, I. Uh, Hooked up with a bunch of two and three time losers and before long, uh, you know, I got into armed robbery to try to demonstrate to people that I was okay. Uh, I, I wanted, I wanted people to like me and, and I would whittle myself down for this group and I'd whittle myself down for that group and I'd whittle myself down for another group and, uh, all I had was just a bunch of whittlings. And yet, uh, there I was out there, uh, Playing this big game that culminated that night, uh, shooting myself in the leg, and uh, alcohol just to me just didn't seem to be the factor. It was there that I was crazy. That if I didn't drink, that I'd be crazy, and uh, that my drinking was just a consequence of uh, of my insanity. And when I came out at the uh, the insistence of the uh, parole department. I had a choice. They said you can go to uh, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, or an AA meeting. Now, of course, I've just said I thought I was crazy, but I went to the AA meeting because it didn't cost anything. And I went to uh, my first AA meeting at a place in California called the Hole in the Ground. And uh, they had a guy in there named Sparky who said, uh, you can't be an alcoholic if you still have a wristwatch. You know, they had uh, a whole bunch of guys that said... Uh, I, I spilled more than you ever drank. And uh, I went out with a group of uh, younger people uh, one night from, from the same meeting. And I leaned over and I told this guy, I said, I have a master's degree in psychology. And uh, which, of course, was a lie. But I, I was shocked that nobody seemed to care anyway. You know, and, uh, it, uh, I thought, boy, this guy's really slow. <laughs> And so I went to the Saturday night Hollywood group and I wanted to rub elbows with some movie stars and to hear some things and, uh, and I hated their guts with a passion. I hated the people I saw in this program. They, uh, they had something like, like in this room right here. A group of people that, uh, that care for each other. Some love, some, uh, some fellowship as we call this. Uh, and, uh, it, it was so scary to me. It was something that I was never ever going to be able to get. Uh, I wasn't going to be able to reach out and uh, be part of this uh, this program. 
And so I responded like I'd responded just about every other time in my life. I took off uh, running uh, on the freight trains and went back east uh, by way of Mexico. And uh, got off the freight train, cleaned myself up, took my Salvation Army pants, went down, took a test to uh, be a social work aide. And uh, even in those days before computers, the uh, ticker tape came screeching back and it said, although Mr. Regan reported a childhood prank, he failed to report an armed robbery conviction and uh, a few other things. We do not think he'd be suitable for employment at this time. And so there I was... Uh, out there working on a sod truck, and every now and then I'd say, I'm going back and give myself up. And I'd get as far as Detroit, and the next time I'd get as far as uh, Pittsburgh, and then Cumberland, and then Hagerstown. And one night I rode a freight train about 50 yards. I uh, I could no longer convince you that I was a jet pilot. Uh, I didn't smell like a jet pilot, and I didn't act like a jet pilot. And I had one place that I could go to get detox. I'd go to my mother with... Uh, who was still drinking. My father had quit on his own, and uh, we uh, we kept alcohol in the uh, the toilet tank. And uh, they'd throw blankets over me, and I'd hear freight trains going through the room. And uh, this one particular night, I don't know what happened, but something happened to me, and I said, you know, just tonight, go without taking this drink. There was a drink in a wax paper cup that I'd reach down and I'd touch, and I'd know that I could get to sleep just a little bit if, uh, if I drank it. And I don't know if I went to sleep or not, but uh, we talk about spiritual experiences, nothing uh, uh, real dramatic, but uh, when I opened my eyes that morning, the drink had eaten through that wax paper cup was on the floor and the sun was shining through a crack in the window and uh, it was the last drink that was ever poured for me. You know, this is... Uh, there was something entirely different about me at that time, uh, I ended up uh, on both feet and went to an AA meeting and uh, it had been physically beaten into me as a kid that you don't ever surrender to anybody. Uh, physically beaten into me that nobody's ever going to help people like us because uh, we ain't worth help. And the only person that can help you is you. What a great way to come into a program that demands surrender, rigorous honesty. I mean, I couldn't get up here without... Uh, Somebody grabbing me uh, before I came up uh, and said, "Remember, you got to be honest tonight and uh, <laughs> surrender." I looked at that uh, that list of twelve steps and I said, "I can probably work that in about thirteen days." <laughs> and uh, and I, I almost wanted to know immediately what is the uh, record for uh, for working that. <laughs> The 12 steps. How, how long does it really take to do this, uh, this thing? I had admitted that I was an alcoholic, uh, in high school. It was not only an admission, it was, uh, I wore it like a great big badge of courage. Uh, I was Mr. Cool, I was Mr. Drunk, and, uh, it was the only identity that I really had. And here I was looking at, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And suddenly, uh, all of a sudden, it, it quickly occurred to me that uh, my life was unmanageable because of my drinking, that uh, every single thing that had happened to me, uh, I hadn't gotten drunk every time I drank, but every time that I got in trouble, I had been drinking. Uh, every violence, uh, every behavior, uh, every uh, 
thing that I wanted to take back uh, had occurred as a result of my uh, my drinking. I started going to 14 meetings a, a week, and in those days, 14 meetings a week was hard to come by. It uh, you had to really do something to uh, to go to 14 meetings a week. I was hanging around with uh, two younger younger guys, and uh, the one guy at every meeting he would come to, he'd say, "You know, I really wish that uh, I could drink. Uh, the whole thing, I really wish that I could drink. I uh, I don't know why I can't drink." And uh, they eventually uh, told him, you know, maybe you'd be better off just drinking. And uh, he ended up uh, found in a parking lot out in front of a bar that I'd been barred from. Uh, they thought he'd had a heart attack. He had a 22 caliber bullet in his heart. And uh, he, he was a roofer who failed to uh, pay a couple people, and, and that was their response in that neighborhood. The other kid I was going to meetings with... Uh, was there just to get his uh, car back that his father had taken away, and uh, he got the car back, didn't need this program, and uh, they found him wrapped around the culvert uh, a little less than a year later. I mean, this is an absolute stone-cold killer disease that uh, that I've been privileged to stay sober and been around long enough to see uh, how many people have died along the way, have taken road tests that uh, that show that this thing really works. Uh, this is a program that says you don't drink and you go to meetings and, uh, and I hated the thought of any kind of a God. Uh, God had never done anything for me. I was, uh, uh, you talk about, uh, the contempt and, uh, with, without even looking at what this program was about, uh, I had that great big giant chip on my shoulder. I dare you to try to reach out and help me because there's, uh, there's absolutely no way you will. And just by being at meetings and just by beginning to hang out with some sober people, suddenly I found that this was the group of people I wanted to be with. Uh, all my life I had looked for people like you that uh, could laugh at me, make fun of me, could uh, hang out with me. That, uh, that They'd always been in the bar, but everybody was talking and nobody was listening. This is the only place I've ever been where people actually listen to what this program is about. And it began to be evident to me that uh, that my life was unmanageable. Uh, you know, they they gave us a in in the Baltimore area groups. They gave us uh, 20 questions that we asked, and if you answered uh, three of them yes, uh, you were definitely an alcoholic. And I'd answered uh, 17 of them uh, yes. And and the ones that that I had answered no to, have you ever been hospitalized as a result of your drinking? I'd had bullet wounds, stabbing. Uh, all kind of, you know, falling out of cars, falling off of freight trains, gone to the hospital, but have you ever been there as a result of your drinking? No. Have, uh, have you ever tried to commit suicide? No. My, my life was, was, a, was a suicide trip. Uh, I, was, I was jumping out of airplanes out on the West Coast as a skydiver with some of my more uh, social uh, period. Uh, to try to calm myself down. And if you... <laughs> if, if you've ever been uh, flying along at uh, 18,000 feet, uh, passing an oxygen mask back and forth on a Sunday morning with a group of engineers and do-right people, and some guy throws up in the oxygen mask, <laughs> it, uh, it ain't social drinking. <laughs> and... Uh, 
this uh, my uh, my need to challenge the biggest guy in the bar, uh, you know, kept my record clear that uh, I would never win a fight. And and no, I wasn't suicidal. And the other one was, do you need a drink at a certain time of day? Absolutely not. You know, and and that was a question that was geared for people where there is a certain time of day. And and like the kids say today, get a life. Well, I didn't have a life to to measure that around at a certain time of day to take a drink. There there was no certain time of day. I'd get up in the morning uh, with one shoe on and one shoe off and try to figure, am I getting up or am I going to bed? You know, and... Uh, <laughs> And it says we admitted we were powerless. And, uh, you know, suddenly something happened that, uh, that just allowed me to surrender. And it happened when, when the miracle took place in this program for me. The, the second step that says, uh, so clear that I came to believe. We came to believe that, uh, you know, I'm walking along. I'm so happy. I'm a fugitive wanted by the state of California. And I'm saying that at meetings. And I'm going to meetings and I'm talking to people and I'm rambling on. And they would say people would take turns with me over in the corner. And, uh, you know, and I was dropping stuff on people saying, and now you'll reject me. And uh, nobody ever rejected me. Uh, people said, keep coming back. Uh, I was telling John, uh, I, I, uh, had some of that reverse snobbery. I thought people with split-level homes were rich. And uh, I would go to the Green Spring Valley meeting in Baltimore, and uh, they'd say, now the topic for tonight is, what do you say when someone offers you a drink? And they'd say, well, uh, I say uh, I have a bad liver. I say uh, uh, I'm not drinking this week. Or I say, so, you know, and, I, and they'd come to me, and I'd say, stick that drink up your ass. I'm an alcoholic. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and these people would would look at me like uh one of these days you're going to realize that uh, we've all hurt from this illness the same way you've hurt you know and uh god i uh i, I couldn't imagine somebody with millions of dollars uh hurting you know and yet uh we were talking at dinner about a guy i knew that uh would detox himself with his own dialysis machine until finally had no kidney left at all. You know, and, uh, you know, you can have far too many resources and, uh, God had given me exactly what I, uh, what I needed. And this, uh, this thing suddenly came to me that, uh, hey, I was going to be able to stay sober, that life was going to, going to be able to be something for me because there really was a God. And the guy who had the, the will, to do nothing at all but to beat you out of something, suddenly realized that uh, I was willing enough to give my will over to the care of a God that I understood. And what a significant development for me to go to a, a retreat. The guy that uh, totally without a God was now able to, uh, to pray to a God of my understanding. And I guess you, you've probably been able to figure that... Uh, that I had uh, one hell of a four-step to do. What's been nice about this was that my four-step was no different than uh, than anybody else's. It's just a matter of degree. And uh, I went through that period where uh, my four-step is worse than your four-step. You know, and uh, I'm going to show you some stuff that you won't even believe. <laughs> and uh, 
I got away from some of that juvenile exhibitionism because this program enabled uh, the lying, thieving uh, individual to finally get honest with himself. But I had this uh, this need to uh, to jump to the 12th step and to immediately get out there and help alcoholics, and I don't recommend this to anybody. I uh, I got a job working in the field at a tuberculosis hospital for. Uh, where 70% of the patient population were alcoholics. We were brought on mainly because the uh, patients were drinking uh, to the point the state police had to be called up to the hospital every weekend. <laughs> I still hadn't worked out my fugitive warrant. And we talk about uh, how AA uh, is not a dating service. AA is not a uh, social welfare agency. AA is not a a bank, a lending institution. Uh, AA does not provide legal services. AA doesn't provide job uh, placement. And I got news for you. I, uh, I got sober in this program and some people began to deal with me and the first time I ever had friends and I got my first job through uh, AA members. I got almost all my jobs through AA members. Uh, some of you from uh, Kokomo know that I... Uh, just recently uh, retired from state government. I, su I survived four governors in an appointed position. And uh, talk about a prostitute, you know, to, uh, <laughs> to uh, two Democrats and two Republicans. I, uh, I was told don't make any major decisions your first year of sobriety, and I married somebody with five kids. <laughs> they were 12, 11, 10, 10, and a boy seven. And, uh, you know, for a drunken skid row bum to be able to join the real world. And uh, we sneaked a look at uh, one of the daughter's uh, applications to go to some fancy summer camp. It said, describe the most rewarding experience of your life. The most rewarding experience of my life was the night my stepfather married my mother. You know, you talk about a skid row bum being able to be part of the real world and to come back. And uh, suddenly I looked around and uh, had four kids in college at the same time. You think running a little chippy heroin habit is expensive. Try putting four kids through college. <laughs> and these, uh, these things that we call uh, lawyers, I had a... I had a guy. Uh, I had a guy come out of the woodwork one night, and he says, "I'm damn sick and tired of hearing about your being a fugitive, and I'd like to help you." And I thought I was doing him a favor. I went to his office, about half as big as this room, and uh, they were going to do some legal services. Got a judge in Baltimore to do some things for me, and uh, I went to the guys in our uh, young people's group, the under 35. We were young, and. Uh, I told him, I said, I can't take anything free from this guy. And they said, well, we didn't we go dig up a stump in his yard last week? You know, and I says, yeah, I guess we did. And, uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't let anybody help me because it just wasn't part of my, uh, my being. And uh, here, was I, here I was in a program surrounded with people that wanted to reach out and help. And uh, they did what would be today around $50,000 worth of legal work. They had me reinstated in California, had the thing shipped back, and uh, had me uh, to uh, accept a parole in Maryland. 
And at the last minute, the uh, the guy in charge of probation and parole refused to take the case. Said there's violence all over this. This guy's a psychopath. And uh, and they said, you know, we don't know what to do, but it looks like you might have to go back to California, and uh, this time do maybe uh, three three or five years in San Quentin or someplace like that. And I said, you know, I don't care. I'm sober. I'm free. You know. And it was like, where did that voice come from? <laughs> you know. <laughs> The, the guy that always ran and immediately hopped on a freight train, uh, I was just saying, uh, I was so nervous before this thing started that uh, if there had been a back door to the men's room, I'd have been gone. And uh, <laughs> that uh, there I was, you know, I was free. And like the song says, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. You can't take that away from me. You can have my job, you can have my wife, you can have my boat, you can have all these little things that Skid Row drunks accumulate when they get in the program. And, <laughs> and, and I have nothing but what's inside my guts and it's more than what I had when I came in this program before. And what, a, what an incredible feeling. And so then they said, we'll try one other thing and they got the uh, governor to overrule the guy that... Uh, had refused to let me back into Maryland. And uh, now, of course, everybody wants to know what we paid Governor Agnew. And, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I ended up, by the way, on the Governor's Crime Commission three years later. Uh, I sat at the same table with the sumbitch that had refused to let me back into Maryland. And uh, what, a, what a glorious feeling to kick him under the table about rehabilitation. <laughs> And I completed that uh, that uh, five to life thing and uh, went out to a, a dinner with uh, Marty Mann and former Governor Hughes uh, from Iowa, Senator Hughes, and uh, my my boss. I was now uh, I'd finished college. I was in graduate school, and uh, they said, "How does it feel to be free tonight?" And you know, it was so easy. I was free the night that I came into this program and said, I desperately need what you have, and uh, I'm going to go to any lengths to get it. I'm going to reach out, and I'm going to do everything that's contrary to my being. I'm going to surrender to you. What, a, what an incredible, glorious feeling to, to talk about surrender as, as a means of strength. Well, you only have to look at Japan. They surrendered a while back, and now uh, they... Every VCR in, in the area is made in Japan. <laughs> Surrender uh, allowed me an opportunity to be free and to begin to work on these steps. And I got uh, tied in with a lot of things called, that I didn't have when I was on the skids. I got uh, some power. I, I eventually became the uh, state alcoholism and drug director uh, in both Maryland and then New Jersey. Anytime some counselor had their certification, it had my name on it. I was uh, the president of all the state directors in this area and uh, of our association. And suddenly uh, I began to think that uh, I was really working the 12th step. And uh, I think you might notice that uh, there's a few steps in between. And a lot of things, uh, I couldn't deal with uh, newfound power, newfound prestige. I'd never had any prestige before, never had any money. Uh, these are things that were traps in so many ways, uh, I had a, a sponsor, by the way, that uh, I was such a fake and a fraud. I wanted a sponsor who was uh, 
who was either a priest or a lawyer or a doctor. Preferably, I wanted a, a sponsor who uh, who was a priest, uh, was also a lawyer, and just finishing med school. And, uh, <laughs> I ended up with a uh, with a guy who was a part-time bartender who. Uh, <laughs> So many, uh, so many things happened uh, getting back into the real world that uh, I began going to meetings. I, I was uh, Father Martin's first supervisor in the alcoholism field. You talk about a nasty time. I had to uh, ride all over the countryside with him. He'd give the blackboard talk, and then I'd talk. It was a little bit like warming up George Carlin, you know, where, uh, where you, uh, only you go after George Carlin. And uh, nothing... Uh, Nothing but pain. And so I'd go to a meeting and people say, oh, are you speaking at the meeting tonight? You know, and uh, I uh, found that along the way, uh, my uh, my marriage broke up. The kids all moved in with me up, up to New Jersey by now. Uh, one of the things I, one of my goals when I was 31 years old was to be six foot four. And uh, <laughs> these uh, these kids were all now taller than me and all in college. And it was like living in the, like in a commune. And it suddenly occurred to me that uh, I got to begin working on me. And I stopped uh, speaking at meetings uh, as a speaker. I went to meetings to listen. I went to discussion meetings. Uh, I went to meetings where uh, nobody knew that I had anything to do with the state of New Jersey's alcoholism and drug abuse programs. Uh, and suddenly I began to getting into uh, to really working what these steps are about. Uh, I don't believe that a person can stay sober without working these steps, without uh, dealing with uh, what history tells us has worked before. And when my wife uh, left me, uh, I didn't even have a sponsor. I, uh, I called a woman who was my uh, had been my secretary in Washington. She'd been Bill Wilson's secretary. And I said, Lib, uh, my wife uh, left me. And... Uh, her response was, uh, how many meetings are you getting to? You know, and I said, uh, I wasn't here to talk about meetings. I said, my wife left me. She says, let's not get into agonizing over yourself. Let's get back into work in this program. <laughs> she was uh, she was a bad employee, too. I would dictate a letter and uh, she'd come in and say, how many uh, how many meetings are you getting to? We're certainly not sending this letter. And, uh, <laughs> So it's been a been an incredible uh, awakening to to find out that uh, there is no seniority in this program. That uh, these uh, these steps wait to be worked uh, at every level of the system. That uh, the guy who always wanted to argue with you and fight with you and uh, hide from you was able to make amends. And more important, uh, is able to say, hey, I made a mistake. What a freeing opportunity and uh, to find prayer and to, uh, to carry this, this message. I, uh, I was thinking uh, a while back, uh, what was the, the time of, of my life that, uh, that I needed a drink more than uh, any time I've ever needed a drink? And, you know, I, I fall victim still to these uh, beer commercials, although I don't like frogs. And uh, the, uh, it, it tells you they're, they're marketing to somebody other than me right now. And uh, 
I can still see drinks that I've never had. Zima and the Bombay gin and the martinis. And I, I see myself as sophisticated and uh, suave and uh, able to be somebody that I'm not. And God sent me uh, a wife that uh, uh, it's been the most beautiful 15-year marriage that uh, that anybody could uh, could deal with. And yet there's been some times where uh, there's still some amends to be made. And it's uh, it's even harder to make amends for things that you've done while you're sober, while you're in this program. Uh, but there are amends that damn well have to be made. And I look back at when I've uh, needed a drink more than any time in my life. And it wasn't the night that uh, I was running out of a liquor store and a car ran over my foot. And, uh, and I just slipped out of the shoe and kept going. And... Uh, <laughs> It was a night that uh, that I was running from the California authorities. I was on a freight train. I had uh, been drinking for about five days, and uh, and I could feel myself going into a convulsion. And I was way out on the desert in Arizona, and some bum got on the train. I had a real nerve to call him a bum. And he had a sleeping bag with him, and he said, uh, "Hey, buddy, you look bad," you know, and. Uh, he said, uh, take this bag and uh, lie down for a little bit. And I took his sleeping bag, went over to the corner of the freight train and put my head down. And the bag uh, must have been around the world with him. He must have uh, had every bodily function in there. And it was just, even in my condition, I, I couldn't stand it. And I gave it back to him. And he knew the route. And he said, uh, this next stop, there's a little Indian curio shop. You'll be able to get a bottle of wine. He said it'll cost you. I had a dollar and a quarter and a, and a wristwatch, and uh, couldn't be an alcoholic. And this uh, this guy showed me where to go to get that, and I got the bottle of wine. And coming back with him, uh, he said, "Look, uh, he said it's going to be awful cold going over the mountains tonight. Why don't you take this sleeping bag for a quarter?" And I had a quarter left, and I and I said, "Well, I'll drink the wine and I'll use the sleeping bag uh, later." And just as I was going back, the train was starting off and it was beginning to jig and, uh, and I was running this way and the train going this way through the desert and, uh, and I looked up and there was my car and I dived into the, into the box car and I made it and all of a sudden I realized that I've broken the bottle of wine. I've got, uh, just the neck of the bottle of wine. Here the, the train is moving along and it's, uh, jiggering along and I've got uh, this neck and I'm trying to drink the little bit of wine that's in there with my knees uh, crouched down uh, in the center of that boxcar. And you know, and I remember when I first started drinking, people were yelling, go Riley, go, you can out drink him. Go Riley, you're the best, the coolest guy in town. And I was drinking because it was cool. At that moment, I was drinking out of that jagged edge that cut my lip for the, for the very need of, of living, physiologically addicted to a substance that, uh, that I couldn't get off of and couldn't live without. And then it occurred to me that I had broken that bottle right in the sleeping bag, and there I was with this old raggedy sleeping bag, draining out each drop of the wine into that little neck of the bottle and drinking it. Uh, that ain't social drinking. <laughs> And I got removed from the uh, from the train that that night when I tried to uh, sell my wristwatch to the uh, 
the guy in the caboose uh, for, a, for a drink. I couldn't imagine that somebody could be going across the desert in the train without a drink. And uh, I was taken off at that time in, uh, in the Tucson area. I look back tonight that, uh, that I don't have to drink, uh, that I'm free, and that I've got a program of recovery because I've got uh, friends. And uh, Bob, I sure appreciate you uh, asking me to get down this area. At, uh, it's so, so many beautiful people I've met tonight. You know, uh, I had wanted my wife to be here tonight. She's off scuba diving, and uh, in a in a previous thing, and uh, then running off to that memorial. And uh, I'm a little bit shook up by some of that, but I can tell you that uh, tonight uh, I need this program far more than I needed it when I came through the door for the first time, because uh, tonight I have so much more to lose. This is, uh, this is the program that saved my life, the program that gave me the ability to, uh, to walk uh, among the people, to be, uh, to be like the people. I was a form of life that, uh, that didn't fit. Uh, tonight I fit with so many misfits, and what a wonderful opportunity to, uh, to be here. Thank you very, very much for allowing me to share.